0: Daily basis. There it is, that great picture, the Vice President of the United States, the Speaker of the House, different parties, different genders, different uh, apparel, obviously. So much a contrast. And that
1: historic handshake, Tom, there it is, the, the, uh, the woman Speaker of the House. Extraordinary
0: moment, is it not? You.
2: Members of Congress. I have the high privilege and the distinct honor of presenting to you the President of the United States.
0: Thank you very much. And tonight I have the high privilege and distinct honor of my own as the first President to begin the State of the Union message with these words, Madam Speaker.
1: That was the opening of President George W. Bush's State of the Union Address to the 110th Congress on January 23, 2007. 10 weeks earlier, under the leadership of Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, American voters swept Democrats back into power after 12 years in the political wilderness. Looking back on it, the midterm election of 2006 was a turning point. The United States had been at war in Iraq and Afghanistan for almost five years, and it wasn't going well. In the next two years, Americans would experience three historic events. First, a financial meltdown of unprecedented scope. Next, a presidential campaign that would elect the first African-American president, Barack Obama. And after Obama was elected, the Populist Tea Party would be born, pushing the GOP even further to the right. But on the evening of January 23, 2007, that was all in the future, and all eyes were on Nancy Pelosi. An eight-term Congresswoman from San Francisco and a former House Whip, Pelosi had been chosen by the Democratic caucus as the first woman Speaker of the House three weeks earlier. When the vote officially installing her as Speaker was announced by the House Clerk, Pelosi was surrounded by her cheering grandchildren. As she ascended to the podium, Republican Minority Leader John Boehner handed over the Speaker's gavel and acknowledged the gravity of the moment.
0: And my fellow Americans, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent, today is a cause for celebration.
1: Pelosi's journey to the speakership fused elements of traditional male-dominated politics with the quiet, behind-the-scenes organizing that was more commonly done, as listeners know from earlier episodes of Why Now?, by women in both the Democratic and Republican parties. Nancy D'Alessandro Pelosi was born on March 24, 1940, the youngest child and only daughter of Annunziata D'Alessandro, also called Nancy, and Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., a Democratic political boss and elected official in Baltimore, Maryland, who, among other offices, served in Congress from 1939 to 1947. Young Nancy D'Alessandro learned politics at her father's knee. But as Time Magazine political reporter Molly Ball observes in her 2021 book, Pelosi, Tommy D'Alessandro, quote, entrusted his wife with much of his political operation. She organized campaign rallies, managed fundraising, and ran the Baltimore Democratic Women's Club out of the family's basement. Known to Tommy's peers as Big Nancy, Nancy D'Alessandro, in Ball's words, was the mayor's chief strategist and political enforcer. She knew where all the bodies were buried, and she never forgot anyone who crossed her. It would not be unreasonable to think of young Nancy D'Alessandro as having absorbed her political lessons from both parents. After marrying financier Paul Pelosi in 1963 and moving with him to San Francisco to raise five children, Nancy Pelosi rose steadily in democratic circles, in part because of her fundraising skills, coming to Congress in 1987 in a special election to replace deceased Congresswoman sally Burton. Nancy Pelosi is still there, and her legendary effectiveness may be due in part to her capacity to bring the more traditional femininity of her Catholic school upbringing to an increasingly nasty, partisan political scene that requires the toughness of an old-school machine Paul. I'll let Molly Ball tell that story.
3: She's also someone who has always foregrounded her femininity in a very traditional way that I think is really interesting. I've thought about this a lot, you know, there was famously Hillary Clinton in her first presidential campaign, almost impersonating a man doing the Margaret Thatcher thing and trying to be tough and almost masculine to convince people that she had the necessary gravitas to be president or or to be a senator or secretary of state. And Nancy Pelosi really took the opposite approach in a way that I think may have been helpful to her. I think it probably put a lot of powerful men at ease that she never challenged their stereotypes of womanhood, right? She's always dressed in a very feminine manner. She was a stay-at-home mom who had five kids in six years uh, before she became a volunteer political activist for many years and before she ran for office. So, you know, I don't think any of those things ought to be anti-feminist acts. You hear a lot in the house about her personal touches, the personal relationships that that help her round up votes, the, the thank you notes and the orchids she sends. She, she's always the first one to call when there's a, a death in the family or someone's fallen ill. And those are certainly stereotypically sort of feminine graces mm-hmm. uh, that have endeared her to a lot of people. So I think, you know, she's, she's a really interesting figure in that. I mean, this is a woman who was born in 1940 mm-hmm. and still very much has a, a 1950s Catholic schoolgirl sensibility, right? Those are her roots. And she's very authentic about that. But Pelosi
1: also knew when it was time to give way to the younger, more diverse generation of leaders who she herself had promoted in the party. In 2018, faced with a challenge to her speakership by seven Democrats, Pelosi agreed to support term limits in the leadership and step back in 2022 when she would be 82 years old. She kept that promise last December after limiting the midterm backlash and ceding only a four-vote margin to the GOP in the House. As the Republican Party led itself through 15 agonizing votes to elect California Congressman Kevin McCarthy as their speaker, Those of us who were watching often saw Pelosi at the elbow of a new Democratic leader, New York's Hakeem Jeffries, counting votes while Democrats mercilessly, sometimes merrily and with perfect discipline, watched the GOP circus play out. So there was no more perfect time to ask my friend John Lawrence, a historian and career Capitol Hill staffer, to come on the show to talk about his new book, the Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership 2005-2010, to 2010, out last year from the University of Kansas Press. John had 30 years of experience on the Hill when, as he put it in our conversation, he was traded to Pelosi in 2006 on the brink of her historic Speakership to serve as her Chief of Staff, a position he held for eight years. Join John and me for this episode of Why Now?, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is Episode 10, A Woman's Place is in the House. For a few years. So I know that you were trained as a historian and then you went into politics. I know a lot of listeners, and maybe even some graduate students in history, are going to be interested in why you chose to put your intellectual skills to work in public life. Can you tell us about the arc of your career and how you were eventually positioned to write this book?
0: When I was finishing my degree at Berkeley, my PhD, I was not. Wedded to the notion of being a, a professor. I had always been very active both in electoral politics and then in anti war politics going back to my high school days and even younger for electoral because a friend of ours had been elected to Congress in 1960. So there was always a strong identification with issues as well as with the idea of of public service. And I love history. I love reading and, and writing it, but I wasn't completely committed at that point to an academic career. As luck had it, I volunteered to work in the campaign of a young reformer who was running for office in 1974 in that post-Watergate class named George Miller, who, who was running for an open seat just north of Berkeley. He won and asked me if I'd like to come back and be his legislative director. I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded like a pretty good idea. And uh, so I packed up and moved back to D.C., worked for him for 30 years and really learned the job, learned the hill and learned a great deal about specific issues.
1: So John, I wanna stop you there for a second. Politics has such a terrible reputation nowadays why should an intellectually curious young person who wants to do good things in the world aspire to work behind the scenes on Capitol
0: Hill? One of the great things about Congress is if you're working for an activist member like a uh, George Miller, you get to dip into all sorts of diverse issues from the environment to civil rights, to workers' rights, to education, disability uh, rights, and, and all sorts of legislation that I had a hand in, which really was just enormously helpful to me in terms of feeling that I was having a beneficial impact nationally in terms of public policy, but also where I got to bring very often my historical training and writing skills into the political process, which isn't always the case in Capitol Hill. Ultimately, I was, after 30 years of a variety of different jobs with him, I was traded, if you will, to Mrs. Pelosi when she was the minority leader. And that was the campaign in 2006 when we were fated to Win back the house. She became speaker, and I remained her chief of staff for the for eight years in both the minority and and the majority. And it's about that period of time, particularly the the gaining uh, acquisition and loss of power, two thousand five to two thousand ten, that this new book was "Arc of Power" was written.
1: So that's fascinating, John. And I, I would just want to say to our listeners out there that a historian going into politics is one direction as a political historian i learned so much about politics by volunteering for elizabeth warren in 2020 it, you know it was not until i walked new hampshire canvassing for warren that i really understood the guts of what a political campaign looked like and you know i'm wondering how your interest in history evolved next to this job you were
0: doing for the american people you know politics and particularly politics at the level that i was practicing it is very presentist in in many in many ways um, i always used to describe my job with speaker pelosi as drinking out of a fire hose you never know what is going to hit you on a particular day and you may have a plan that you've laid out for a particular Congress or for your work on a particular committee, and then uh, something utterly unplanned and extraneous intervenes and, and alters the trajectory of what you're working on. And so you're constantly thinking about today, and you're thinking strategically about how to accomplish goals. There isn't very often, there isn't a lot of thinking into how did we get here? What are the experiences? What is the history, both personal and institutional? That gets us to the point that not only is problem presenting itself, but where are the various players coming from, the parties, the institutions? And it was in that context that I think having that historical perspective was really valuable. And I would find myself very often, even as I was obsessed with the present problem, whether that was a putting together a hearing or a markup or writing legislation, writing background materials that put the issue and the players into context. And very often I was the only person doing that. And, and as a result, my work was really valued in a way that if I were just looking at the, the lay of the land as it existed at the moment, uh, you really would have looking, been looking fairly superficially uh, at, the, at both the nature of the problem and maybe even how to go about resolving the problem.
1: Now that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I want to turn to the book now, John, which I just want to say is so well written. Thank you. Um, and I'd like to think that has something to do with your training as a historian, but maybe your training as as writing things clearly for legislators as well. And it reminds me of a, you know, sort of adult version of a children's series I used to love, which is was called You Are There. You know, as I was reading the book, I felt like I was there. I was there in these rooms. The book begins in 2006 as Nancy Pelosi is on the brink of becoming the first woman speaker of the House, a position she has held off and on since the Democrats lost the House uh, last November, and she stepped back as leader. So reflecting on Pelosi's speakership as a historian, how did she inhabit that role as a woman and a politician? Did she change the role of speaker? What were the elements of her success as the first woman
0: speaker? Well, I think there, there are really two separate issues there. One is that her role as a woman, one is the role that she played as, as speaker. In one sense, she would downplay the significance of her being a woman. Uh, She never really dismissed it, and she certainly recognized the difficulty of her having uh, ascended to the speakership. She would very often say she thought it was harder for a woman to become speaker in the male domination of the Congress than to become president, where women constituted half of of the electorate. But she certainly used the speakership in a way that has increasingly, over the last 30 years or so, become commonplace. And that is as a very strong position, reminiscent of the the speakerships of the late 19th, early 20th century. And that was necessitated by the closeness of the margins that existed and the factionalism within the Democratic Party that really necessitated her being able to marshal the party, particularly in these last four years that she was speaker, when she only had a four vote margin. When I was her chief of staff, we had 256 votes. In the last four years, she had 222 votes. So very, very difficult to, to do that. And yet she was extraordinarily skilled at it.
1: I think it's important to say that Mrs. Pelosi's speakership was also a breathtaking moment for women in 2006, when there were 68 women in the House, at that time the most ever, but that number has grown dramatically during the 16 years of her leadership. I mean, it's really dramatic. 149 women will serve in the 118th Congress, and that's up two from a record 147 in the 117th Congress. Let's listen to what Mrs. Pelosi had to say about her role in inspiring women in her last press conference as speaker.
2: In terms of women, though, they're always asking me. I'm, that's I get asked a the what advice do you have? I say the best advice I ever had that I extend to you is be yourself. You're the only person in the history of the world who is you. What you have is authentic, is, is uh, special, is unique, and that diversity is necessary at the table. Also, I want women to have confidence, so sometimes when I act a little more, shall we say, like myself, (laughs) it's because I want them to know it's okay to assert yourself, to have confidence in what you bring to the table, and also to understand your uniqueness. So uh, I get overwhelmed by women telling me how I've given them confidence or a role model and this. And I said, don't worry about any role model.
1: I mean, you can tell the question makes her a little bit impatient. Like, why are we talking about inspiration when there's work to be done? But it also gives our listeners a little insight on the fact that Nancy Pelosi hasn't just tolerated some of the outspoken progressive women who have been elected in the last few years. She really believes in them. I mean, she believes that people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, Cori Bush, Ayanna Presley, Pramila Jayapal and Ilhan Omar are valuable for who they are and
0: that the party is stronger for the ways that they dissent. Just add one more thing with respect to her role as as a woman. I think that it did hugely sensitize her to the underrepresentation of women and minorities, both in the Congress and uh, in general, and in the leadership of the Congress. And she very assiduously used her powers both to recruit candidates and then to elevate women and minorities in the Democratic Caucus putting them into key positions on committees so that they would move into subcommittee and even full committee chairmanships within just a very very short period of time of naming women and minority caucus representatives to the leadership council so that you had this rich diversity of people involved in the decision making process not just casting votes. And she would very often draw a contrast between that uh, situation in the Democratic caucus, which is a majority minority caucus and has been for over a decade, with either the Republican caucus in the House or with the United States Senate as an institution. And in fact, the absence of adequate minority representation in the Senate, including in large areas of the country where there are significant minority populations in the states, but not reflected in the Senate as they are in the House, in their delegations, was the special responsibility she felt that the House brought to the legislative process. And so in that way, she was quite sensitized to the, to the need for enhancing and amplifying the role of women and minority members in the Congress.
1: And one of the things you say right at the beginning of the book is that Pelosi instituted this weekly breakfast for new members, and that she's not only bringing new people into the House, but she's educating them to function in it. And I, I wonder if you could talk about the period you're looking at, which is 2006 to 2010. Who were the people who she began to gather around her and train, who we're beginning to see now taking more powerful and important roles in Congress?
0: Yeah. So that, that's, that was really the, the, the key period for her in terms of fashioning this more diverse group of people who would be part of that leadership. And and there are some of these, you know, one of the problems, of course, of the House is a lot of people are relatively anonymous. And so it's hard to recognize them. But for example, she was adamant that somebody from African-American delegation, which is a significant group, the Congressional Black Caucus, have a seat at the leadership table. She created a new position so that Jim Clyburn would be there. She brought in Uh, representatives from the LGBT community. A Barney Frank was put into leadership uh, at the the table, was given responsibility, obviously, for a lot of the financial services legislation as the chairman of that committee. She brought in Javier Becerra to make sure that the CHC, a lot of these minority members or members who were from groups that had not yet secured the seniority to automatically be elevated into the leadership councils. She made a point of bringing them in because she understood that ultimately she was going to have to defend the work product that the committees produced or that the leadership produced and, and seek the support of the entire caucus, particularly, I would say, uh, after the Obama election in 2008, because at that point, it became evident that whatever bipartisan collaboration we had been able to secure during the last two years of the Bush administration, which were the first two years of the Pelosi speakership, uh, that dissipated entirely. The Republicans made very clear, as they have pretty much ever since, that they have no interest whatsoever in participating with Democrats in passing legislation, that they really, I think, devolved largely to an obstructionist role. And so that made it more and more important that Pelosi engaged the entire caucus and that she'd be able to maintain high credibility levels with the whole caucus, because she was going to need every single vote that she could she could gather to pass Really significant legislation,
1: and we're told that Pelosi counts votes as well or better than Lyndon Johnson did when he was the leader in the Senate. So keeping those votes in your head
0: at all times. Yeah, and <laughs> she would, uh, you know, she was really good at at it. She would take the report from the the whips office, uh, but then you know every night before a big vote, we would be in that office until midnight and one o'clock. Remember, we we passed most of our big legislation by only a handful of votes, even though we had a forty seat majority. And she would be ticking down that list of names, and you know, making sure that we had gotten an, a serious answer—yes or a no, not a "well, I think you'll be okay" or you know, I think this is going to pass. <laughs> you got to know the right answer when it's given to you, and then you'd go back and you would do it again. I always would say one of the last places you wanted to be. When there was a tough vote on the floor was an undecided member with an open seat next to you, because the probability is it would be occupied by Nancy Pelosi, who would spend whatever time it was necessary to try to persuade you.
1: Well, as Nancy Pelosi's biggest fan, I personally would kill to be in that seat. But you're also pointing to something important. She works for what she wants, and she doesn't always get it, right?
0: You know, and I would just say this, which I think is really important for people to appreciate. Uh, You know, obviously, we lost a lot of votes on Democratic votes uh, on some key legislation. There are some issues where the speaker would not ask people to go against their conscience, you know, whether it was funding on the Iraq war. And we had some liberals who would not vote for a defense bill that had that included. There were some uh, Democrats who would not vote for a health bill if it had any kind of abortion funding included in it. So we, we lost people on the left. We lost people. Uh, on the right. But I will say this. People cast a lot of very, very tough votes. And she you know, pushed legislation, whether it was energy or the financial rescue legislation or the stimulus bill or certainly healthcare, knowing that it was going to cost people seats. We didn't know it was going to cost people so many seats, but we did know it was going to cost us seats. And because of the fact that she gave people the opportunity to participate in that process, through those breakfasts you mentioned, through leadership meetings, through frequent caucus meetings and one-on-one meetings, you very rarely heard people complain that she had asked them to do anything inappropriate. And I rarely heard anything, and I say this in the book, I rarely heard anybody who even complained that they lost their seat. Uh, many people felt that they had come to do a job and they did it and and they were prepared to accept that personal cost.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So people trusted her and, and certainly those of us Democrats out here Have learned to trust her. I remember right before the 2022 midterm when Pelosi was being interviewed on the PBS NewsHour. Well, instead of me describing it, let's listen to it. Nancy Pelosi is being interviewed by anchor Judy Woodruff and Woodruff is essentially saying you are about to get swallowed in a red wave that pundits and certainly the Republican Party has been predicting for weeks. So let's talk about the election. Okay. Uh, you just heard us reporting the polls are showing this looks like a good night, a good day for Republicans to take back control of the House. Do you see a way for Democrats to hold on?
2: I do. I have always objected to the presentation, the media thread that was out there. You can't win because, and it's an off year. So who cares? It's we have great candidates who have confidence and courage to run because they believe. In they know why they're running. And they know that our democracy at stake, our planet is at risk, but also that you win these elections on the kitchen table issues. And uh, we have a great record. So I... Let me just say, uh, I have three measures, message, mobilization, money, uh, that we have to have. And But the most important part of that is that's the platform for our candidates to stand on. We have far superior candidates. We own the ground out there today. And just because a pundit in Washington says history says you can't win is no deterrent for the enthusiasm we have out there. So I think you will be surprised this evening.
1: You mentioned kitchen table issues. Yes. I'm sure you know there are a number of Democratic analysts out there saying, people who identify as Democrats, who are saying they think too many of the Democratic candidates this year were talking about, as important as they are, issues like abortion and democracy rather than tackling head on the question of inflation,
2: the economy, crime, mm-hmm. the issues that people say they're worried about. Well, I, with all due respect to whoever those analysts are, our candidates know their districts and they are connecting to their districts. So, the message that might be useful for somebody in Washington, D.C., is maybe not the message that works. Our candidates are contrasting themselves in a positive way about what they believe in, lower cost, bigger paychecks, safer communities, and a record that the Democrats have in that regard that our great president has taken the lead on and Congress has fulfilled. And they take their message. and. That your, I support freedom of expre, uh, freedom of choice for a woman. You support a nationwide ban on abortion. I support lowering prescription drug prices. You voted to, against that and said your purpose, if you win, is to reverse lowering prescription drug prices. I support Social Security. You say we should put it on the chopping block. And the list goes on. Climate, you name it, gun safety, and the rest. So in their districts, they know it's all politics is local. They know how to connect to their voters better than some general pundits in Washington DC, with all due respect.
1: But you can see the kind of respect she has for each of her members, and it's an interesting contrast. Republican candidates had a list of about three talking points that everyone used and that made their candidates nearly interchangeable, and liberal pundits were tearing their hair out saying, oh my God, why can't Democrats be more like Republicans? Why are you talking about abortion when it's the economy voters care about? But Nancy Pelosi was right. It's the oldest Democratic play in the book. As another great speaker, Tip O'Neill, said, all politics is local. But you also need mutual trust to legislate, right?
0: It's a very key observation that that, uh, that you've made. And, and let me just expand on it a little bit. This notion of trusting her was really, really important. And the reason being, she knew that she would be able to produce legislation from the House that was probably, that was responsive to the liberal leanings of the Democratic caucus. But she also knew that it would be very difficult to get that legislation through the Senate because of all the the procedural and, and structural institutional problems that the Senate invariably presents. And so it was crucial that members of the Progressive Caucus, which may be 180 Democratic members, believed that she had fought as hard as she could possibly fight. And if we had to come back and pass something that was not acceptable, that did include funding for uh, the Iraq war, without some of the conditions on on withdrawal or limitations on the use of the money, or that financial services assi- uh, bailouts without some of the restrictions on golden parachutes and bonuses, or the f- healthcare that didn't have the public option. People had to believe that she had fought as hard as possible and gave up only when she had to and only in return for something else. So if, if we didn't get the restrictions on golden parachutes, for the TARP legislation, for example, we did get a hundred percent repayment with interest, which ended up, incidentally, making the taxpayers a hundred billion dollars in profits. Um, if we didn't get the uh, the public option, we did get the national exchange. So people who live in conservative states that didn't offer the exchanges would have some place to buy subsidized insurance. And she was able to build that trust. Uh, She she always had problems with people in San Francisco, interestingly, because she didn't have the ability to work with them one-on-one the way she did with members. But the members knew that she had fought. and, And if she was asking them to accept something that was less than ideal from the progressive standpoint, well, it was less than ideal for her as well. I would just make the point, this is one of the problems that Republican speakers have run into, whether it was John Boehner or Paul Ryan. Number one, their people don't necessarily trust them. They think that they are too institutional by virtue of being speaker and being in the majority. You're trying to make things happen, which a lot of their members don't really care if they happen. Our members did care if a health bill passed. They did care if a Dodd-Frank financial reform passed or if a stimulus passed or if a climate change bill passed. But they could not live with that failure. One of the problems that, that Boehner and Ryan and I suspect McCarthy will ultimately encounter uh, is that a significant portion of the Republican caucus at this point is not legislatively oriented and doesn't really care. And they're not they have very little respect for the institution. So Democrats need people to respect the institution so it will entrust them to do things on behalf of the public through the the, the actions of the federal government. The Republican Party so altered itself uh, that at this point, when John Boehner would go back and ask them, you know, I need your votes for a debt ceiling increase or to pass a, Continuing resolution, you know, a significant portion of his caucus could say, I, I don't, I'm not voting for that. And he would say, Well, well the government's going to shut down. I don't care. I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not here to make the government look good to the extent to which my actions or my inactions increase public disdain for government. That's what I signed up for. And that's why when I ran into Boehner, in December of 2010, right after they had won the majority. And, and Boehner and I actually got along very well. I kn- had worked with him for years in the education committee. And I congratulated him. And I said, you know, I you know I hope you do okay. He said, in six months, I'll be more popular in your caucus than I am in my own. Because he knew that he had been elevated to the speakership by this infusion of Tea Party members who were going to be impossible to control. He, he used to compare it to you know, keeping frogs in a wheelbarrow. And he he knew that that was going to be the case. And in fact, that has been the case for every Republican speaker.
1: And this lack of trust is what we kept hearing about through the endless votes for speaker that Kevin McCarthy survived, but only by promising a small group of members a range of things that have now totally destabilized his leadership. For example, the rule on vacating the chair. Can we end our conversation on a prediction about Kevin McCarthy's future? I mean, just to give you a hint about what I think, I'm buying a head of lettuce. But in other words, John, why should Kevin McCarthy read this book now?
0: Here's why it's a particular problem for Kevin McCarthy. By changing the rules on vacating the chair, where any Republican member can stand up on any day and challenge the chair and force a vote on the chair, and he's only got a margin of four votes, remember, that made the ability to negotiate with Democrats who McCarthy will have to be able to negotiate with in order to pass these bills because he doesn't have enough Republican votes. He is going to be on the razor's edge every single day and face a disapproval vote every single day. You can't govern that way. And and I see very, very, very tough uh, navigating for him in the months ahead.
1: And that's it for today's show you can go to the political junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes leave a comment or ask a question you can subscribe to political junkie for free which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast or you can pay as little as five dollars a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.